welcome to Casuals of Runeterra Book Club. I'm your host, Ryan, and we're back again with the Runation novel, and this time we're going into part two of this series. So part two is going to be chapter 10 through 12. Uh, so if this is your first time here, welcome, first of all. <laughs> but please go listen to part one, because uh, you don't want to miss those chapters. You're going to be thrown into the deep end here. And the way this part picks up, it's going to feel like a different book if you start here uh, than if you start from the beginning. Uh, so, you know, please get that context if you have the time. If you want to start here, well, you know, we'll try to try to catch you up on what's going on. Uh, but at the top, which you can expect at every episode, is housekeeping. So you can listen to us everywhere. Contact us at podcastcore at gmail.com. Visit us at podcastcore.com for all of our info. Uh, follow us on any platform that you prefer to listen to podcasts on. Uh, we're on all of them. Uh, but if you do follow us on all the platforms, we appreciate it. Uh, that helps with discoverability, especially like on YouTube, if you just want to follow there as well or subscribe there, because uh, that helps us get out to more people, right? So if you like it, other people will like it as well. So, you know, leave a like, a comment, short review. Uh, but the easiest way is word of mouth. That's how we've gotten this far. And that's by telling a friend to understand their paths to destiny by listening to the Casuals of Runeterra podcast. And I don't have Hetch here to berate me about that, so we'll just hop straight into the main topic here. So for part two, we start off with an intro. Uh, and this has a quote at the beginning, which is a proverb that says, better to act and risk a mistake than do nothing, trapped by indecision. Right. So this is a this alludes to Callista mentally uh, and we'll go back and forth to her internal monologue throughout this episode, which will reinforce this specific line here where she's constantly trying to move forward uh, because she doesn't want to end up just not knowing what to do uh, and ending up having to give up her mission and ultimately not be able to save the queen. And speaking of the queen. <clears throat> we have an excerpt from Queen Isolde's journal to start off this chapter. So in this journal, or these excerpts, these logs are from right when she became a newlywed, right? Her and Viego got married, and she talks about, once again, the feelings of being out of place and unwanted in the high court, being a low-born lady. Uh, we've mentioned that in the previous episodes, and she too internally feels the same way uh, as most people can kind of see from the outside. In addition to this, she talks about Viego and Callista kind of being the only ones that make her feel seen, and she gains more confidence through that, and with her position now in this, quote, uncomfortable, awkward, unique, in-between place, uh, she's able to push power through that uh, and have more influence because she now is more comfortable in her position. And she's hopeful. She's hopeful for the future of a more benevolent Camivore and her influence in that change. And this is something we hear now from her, but previously from Callista, because Callista, remember, she's a princess, right? Uh, but she's different, and she doesn't like the past imperialistic nature of you know, her grandfather and uh, just the kings of Camivore and how they've conducted themselves before. And the view we'll get throughout these chapters is now that Callista's outside of Camivore doing this mission, uh, she's going to interact with other people who have a view of Camivorians. So let's hop into chapter 10 to start. 
So as in previous chapters, I'm going to break the chapters down into scenes. So it's a little more easier to follow. These first three chapters of part two are a bit longer than most of the chapters in the part one of the series. So we start here in chapter 10 with scene one. Uh, and this is headed by Captain Venix of Vestaya. And we've talked about Vestaya's before. Listen to our Ari episodes, uh, including her story, where there's plenty of details, probably the most details we've done on Vestaya. So that'll give you more of a rounded uh, understanding of how is it possible that the captain of the ship is a Vestaya and a Camivorian. It's there. Uh, so check that out. But yeah. So they're on the search for the Blessed Isles, and they've been at this point uh, on this adventure for about two weeks, I believe. And at this point, it's starting to become monotonous, right? You're just sailing. Uh, it's starting to set in because Calissa's not so used to sailing this much, especially alone. There's not really outside of Venix's crew. It's just her, right? No friends, whatever. She's kind of a fish out of water, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, but the water they're sailing on as they're getting closer to where they suspect the Blessed Isles are, uh, there's really no sign of ocean life. It's still uh, the birds, fish, etc., not really present. And the only thing she has is her workout routine to kind of stave off boredom. So at least she's staying in shape, right? She's staying active. And we finally get some banter between Venix and Callista. And this is important because this kind of builds out uh, the relationship we're going to get moving throughout these chapters, which end up being more interesting than I thought it would be. Um, but Venix is the type that likes to tease, right? She's teasing uh, Callista by constantly calling her princess, even though Callista asks her constantly, hey, don't call me that. I'm not just a princess, right? She's proud of her position that she's worked hard for, um, even though she's still royalty. And, you know, they talk about the chances of finding the island, uh, which one no one has seen in a hundred years, right? They're going off these notes that Necrid has kind of hobbled together from previous, you know, explorers or uh, brilliant minds like Zillion that we've mentioned in the past. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about Avenix's features because, you know, Vestaya's for us are very interesting. And this is actually a type that we got to talk about in detail in the R episodes. But she's labeled as a no-nonsense Vestayan woman uh, named Venix. Her features were broad, her eyes dark and intense. Her fur was felt-like and pale on her face and the undersides of her arms. But elsewhere, it was thicker and as dark as mahogany. She had round, furry eyes resembling an otter's, pierced with a score of rings, and her hands ended in stubby claws painted vivid pink. So think about Jack Sparrow, but an otter human hybrid. <laughs> and I'll go more into why that is uh, in later parts of the chapter. So we move into, uh, you know, we get the details of that. We then get the details of the ship they're on. It's not a large vessel, right? This is meant to be almost like a spec ops mission. So it says here, the Daggerhawk wasn't the largest of vessels in the Camavorian fleet, but she was one of the swiftest. When becalmed, she was able to be powered by oars, but if there was even the slightest of winds, her multiple sails took full advantage and she sliced through the water like a knife, hence the name. And this is important 
because like I said, the water they're on is still there's they, they need to be able to traverse any unsuspecting features and this will come in handy in a bit. So at the end of the scene, uh, suddenly the lookout points out, hey, there's something abnormal on the horizon. Calissa's like, okay, what? She climbs up there, takes a peek, and she notices that there isn't any horizon. And that's the unusual part. <laughs> so this takes us to scene two. So in scene two, we start with this endless veil of mist in front of the dagger, uh, the dagger hawk with an unnatural look to it, right? It goes all the way up and it goes all the way out. You can't really see what's on any side of it. So they decide, okay, let's sail into it not knowing what choice do we have. We need to get on the other side of this mist. So as they pass into it, Venix points out that it feels magical and not just like that's not a metaphor. Literally, it feels magical and the atmosphere inside the mist is completely different from outside the mist. And Callista looks at Venix and she notices, oh, you're glowing from interacting with this magical mist. And that's because Vistayas are magical creatures themselves. So they have a relation to it. And once again, go listen to the episode, the Ari episodes, and you'll understand more in detail uh, what I mean by that. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good myself. Um, but the other thing is there's no wind inside of here. So once again, that's why they're on the dagger, the dagger hawk. So they decide to paddle and they paddle and they exit the mist and the elements return to standard, right? You, you have a little bit of wind, the boat begins to rock a bit, but it seems like they're back where they're started. So they, Calissa tells Venix, you know, look at your compass. She looks at her compass and her compass needle is just spinning wildly. And then it stops and it points back into the mist where they just came from. So that's an uh-oh moment, <laughs> right? Um, completely unexpected. And you're starting to get some feelings of, say, like a Pirates of the Caribbean, a Indiana Jones, and a lot of this writing in these first couple chapters of this part two uh, are styled as such on purpose. <clears throat> so moving to scene three, which is the final scene of this chapter, and they make three more attempts. They try some different tactics, but the results are the same. Uh, there were birds and otters in the mist. So they saw animals inside, which that's a clear sign. Okay, if there's life inside. There has to be land. Uh, but they had no luck in actually touching upon that land. And then during the night, you know, when they went through the veil or when they're outside of it, they're seeing it pulse with this pale light, which is related to the magical um, properties of it. So Venix looks up after they come out the mist. And she uses the stars to kind of figure out their location. And she discovers that they're not technically right where they started. They're kind of out of the position where they thought they were. They're actually further west than they planned on being. So she calls it a night and tells Callista, hey, let me know what you want to do next. I'm going to go chill and burn off some steam and just lie down. The cap or the crew is tired. They're going to rest as well. Uh, so you let me know if you want to either keep trying or just go home. It's up to you, princess. And she bounces. So during this time, Callista looks through the notes of Necrid because she can't really sleep uh, and can't really make heads or tails of it. But then she's reading through a part specifically related to what Zillion wrote. And she has this idea, rushes down to Venix's quarters. And then we have a little interesting scene here where <laughs> Callista essentially walks on on a walks in on a tired, naked Venix, um, who isn't very shy about her body. Or about flirting, and she kind of teases Calissa for being a prude, right? Once again, she likes to refer to her as princess. And 
Callista kind of turns her back while Venix is getting dressed in her basically Jack Sparrow attire. And as she's doing that, she mentions, you know, what is what lands are about 10 days from here based on the note she saw. Venice kind of goes through a list in her mind of, you know, where she's been around this area. And she mentions, oh, well, there's the Buru, which are in the Serpent Isles. And, you know, gasp, the crowd gasp. Um, we talk about the Buru people in our uh, Alawi episodes. So go listen to those. And that gives you more detail about them, their culture. Uh, no Alawi yet. Hopefully she shows up. I think she's going to show up in the book uh, since we're talking about the Ru Nation, right? Uh, the big one. But Callista believes that they may be able to find a guide there because, and Venice agrees to give it a shot. And then she decides, okay, I'm going to go break the news to my tired crew uh, because the Buru are known for being monster hunters and not having any fear whatsoever. So when it comes to something like the Blessed Isles they're trying to find, somebody in town or in their village should know about what they're looking for and should be able to help them. So it should be easy, right? Right? <laughs> well, we're going to find out in chapter 11. So let's move into chapter 11. All right. So chapter 11, as I mentioned before, this is the style of an Indiana Jones. First half, let's call it Pirates of the Caribbean. This chapter, it's purely Indiana Jones. Um, we start with scene one. And Callista is leaving the quarters of the crab priest. And she's angry. Because essentially he refused to assist her and their crew or give them any answers. They pretty much shrugged them off uh, as, you know, outsiders. They have no reason to help them. Uh, and they also don't know what they're up to. And remember, most people outside of Camivore know that Callista's Camivorean. So that plays into it as well. Um, additionally, they sought assistance outside of the priesthood. Uh, so indirectly, and other people decli declined to help them as well, uh, declined and even deferred, hey, maybe you should just go talk to, you know, that's up to the patriarchy. That's up to the priest, the crab priest. Uh, so there was, they're at a dead end, right? They had no kind of compass on to where to go next. Um, and they also never were given a solid reason on to why they couldn't get any help or information, despite having Camivorian gold coins, which are sought after, etc. So Venix believes that it's not about coin, it's not about position, it's about religion. Uh, because the Buru people, if you've listened to our Alawi episodes, um, or episodes uh, that have some information about the Buru, uh, they're very religious. And it's not the same as um, like religion in Camivore. And Callista mentions this, and she's actually in awe of how their palace is set up. Because uh, she's contemplating, you know, what to do next, but she's also looking at the paintings in the temple and how everything is related to their gods. I mean, there's even parts of the island are carved to look like tentacles coming up from the ocean, right? Like the stone spires coming up from the ocean, which is a really cool imagery uh, when you think about it. And this is related to Nagakaboros, which we talk about uh, the badass god of tentacles. And once again, listen to our Laoi episode for more details about that, because it's very cool um, how their religion is set up. And we go into big details about the concepts and the tenets of that religion because it's given to us, uh, which is neat. But, you know, despite being in a foul mood, Callista was in awe of the beauty of not only how they represented their religion, 
uh, but also the island itself, right? It's nothing like uh, Camavor, even to the point where she says the everyday people look like warriors. Like anybody here could go to war at any moment. They're intimidating. They're not mean. Uh, they're welcoming, you know, even though they're not answering their questions, but they're welcoming people. So, you know, she's kind of balancing her mood here. And Venick says, okay, you know what? Obviously, it's not going your way. Let's go to this crab spot I know, get something to eat, get some drinks, and relax. And then we'll think about the next step from there. This takes us to scene two. So Callista enjoys her meal. Venix was right. This was the spot. Um, and while she's eating, she's kind of watching the Buru people essentially prepare for the night to go out and go see monster hunting. And she mentions that it's almost like they're kissing each other before they go off to war. Uh, and it's almost as, if not more dangerous uh, than that, when Venix kind of explains what this monster hunting means to them. And after contemplating, you know, I'll just go back to the dagger hawk. Uh, Calissa knows she's in a bad mood. She feels she's bringing all the other crew down. Uh, Venix convince her, convinces her to stay for a while because things are about to get a bit interesting. So what does she mean by that? She's noticing that around the bar, they're getting these dark glares from other foreign soldiers. So not Buru people. The, the Buru guards are just kind of watching with smirks on their face uh, around the bar. And there's a moment where a sailor bumps into a crew member, causing him to spill his drink, and they're immediately at each other's throat, right? They're in each other's faces, they're yelling, they're probably pushing a bit. And before the locals can get involved, Venix kind of slides in there, because she's not super tall compared to the rest of the crew. And she raises her hands, you know, hands up is kind of a universal signal for I mean no harm, I come in peace. Um, she then gets, you know, the the let's say the attacker looks down at her and kind of brushes her off and she gets pissed <laughs> and decides to uppercut him by punching him in the throat with all of her might. And this causes the bar to erupt and Calista's on her feet and she easily dispatches one of these other unwise sailors who has like a, a broken leg or a broken uh, chair leg in his hand comes at her and the onlookers are, you know, the Buru onlookers are impressed by the prowess of these sailors and this Camivorian crew uh, in this little heated dispute here. Then this old woman comes running out of the kitchen and she's like, break this up. And that's when the Buru bruisers hop into action and they're big and they're strong uh, and they pretty much quiet things really quickly. This was the cue for them to leave. Uh, Callista is the last to leave and she apologizes even though they don't really speak her language, but leaves a handful of Camivorian coins because money is the universal language. And despite some wounds the crew has, uh, and Callista, she's pretty much clean herself, very agile. Uh, and Venix, everyone is happy, right? It's kind of lifted the spirits of the crew. They're a good old pirate crew, essentially. So a little, you know, rough housing is the way to bring their spirits up. And they start piling into this rowboat, and then a man approaches. And this man is speaking this harsh, this harsh language that Callista didn't know. Uh, I immediately think of like German, right? Because it has a real punch to it. You never know if someone is arguing with each other or not. Um, but it doesn't seem like that. They're just communicating. Venix responds, which surprises Callista, uh, because like we talk about in our other episodes, Vistaya are known for being able to pick things up quickly. Uh, they have like better eyesight. They can pick up languages quickly. They're magical beings, right? It makes sense. Uh, I say it makes sense like, because it's magic. Just stick with me here. <laughs> but she translates that he wants to help them find what they seek. 
uh, in the right place. And this is kind of their only lifeline. So Callista's hesitant because it's too good to be true at this moment, but she doesn't have any choice. And the other thing is this man has like a steel smile. He has all steel teeth and he won't stop smiling. And the sun is like glinting off of them. Like I said, very Indiana Jones. But she says, all right, I've run out of options. Let's give it a shot. And this takes us into the next scene. So they follow this man known as, we had a name here, Razu Pharos. We'll just call him Pharos moving forward. And Cal notices his ship is unlike anything she's ever seen before. It was like a small town built into the ship, kind of whimsical in a way, with like shingled roofs, um, chimneys, all the works. But it's a ship and it's massive. And he called the ship Progress. This might be a hint to some Piltovian development. We don't get that much detail yet on where he's from. But he mentions that it was built with gears and hidden mechanisms, but no magic was involved to make everything work. Once again, pointing back to uh, the city of progress itself. And he says it was crafted in Ashara Vazun, which this could be a town outside. I'm not sure. I don't, that name doesn't ring a bell. Maybe in future episodes, we'll get a little more detail or I'll be able to tell you exactly where it's at on the map. But they travel deeper into the jungle via rowboat because they have to pretty much dock their ships to get where they're going. And they meet back up with Pharaohs, and he's on the beach and he's, you know, all, all smiles, still sun glinting off his teeth. And they expected the seer to be with him because that's what they're going. They're going to find this seer that's supposed to guide them to the, the path to get them to the Blessed Isles or whatever they're seeking because Pharaohs doesn't know what they're seeking. He just knows that they have money and status as Camivorian soldiers. But she uh, thought the seer would be on the beach with him. They're not. So she, he says, you have to go deeper into the jungle. And that's, once again, red flag. He's really vague about the details of where they have to go uh, because he's really focused on getting the payment. And Callista agrees, okay, I'll give you a third of the promised payment, and then I'll give you the rest when we return from the seer. And he laughs and mentions in his language that Venix overhears that not everyone is as ruthless and driven by greed as Camavorians, which, hey, he kind of has a point. <laughs> it's rude, but he has a point because he doesn't know them, right? So they're both offended by this, but his perception, his perception is not really off based on what Callista knows deep down about her, you know, her city. Uh, but Callista whispers to Venix, you know, we'll go along with it, but keep an eye to ensure that nothing funny happens. And they decide to head deeper into the jungle. And that's where chapter 11 leaves off. And then this takes us to chapter 12, which will be our last chapter for this episode. So chapter 12 um, has as many, if not more scenes <laughs> than the other chapters. But we'll move at a clip to finish this up. I know it's been a pretty long one uh, for the coverage of the beginning of part two, but we'll start with scene one as usual. So this one's pretty short. Pharos guides them deeper into the jungle. They reach this massive water hole or waterfall going down into a sinkhole. And he says that the person you're looking for is at the bottom of that. Once again, another red flag. It's like how deep into the jungle and how deep underground can you get them before he does something, right? Uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. And then in scene two, Callista starts heading down there and it takes her a while to get down there. They get to the, the sinkhole 
at sunset or like right when sunset is starting. And when she gets to the bottom, it's night, it's pitch black, uh, but she can see the stars and that's beautiful. And once she reaches the bottom, reaches the bottom, uh, there's a bit more traversing across some narrow paths and she sees this tall still figure on one of the rocks. It's kind of out of like view, like she can't see them clearly, but she notices immediately they look majestic. And also the voice they speak with has an inhuman tone to it and is lacking any specific dialect. Dialect. And the first thing they do is refer to her by her full name, you know, the name her mama calls her <laughs> type thing. Um, they refer to her as Callista Volkala Helgari of Camivore. And as Hetch always says, once we say it, that's the way it's said. Uh, and she never introduced herself. So that's a red, that's another thing of like, okay, we're dealing with something abnormal here, right? And then this person finally reveals themselves. And I'll go ahead and read the quote here of their description. The seer skin was the pale purple of dusk, and she stood upon long, reversed, jointed legs that ended in hooves. From the center of her forehead extended a curving horn that shimmered like moonlight. And then this person said, I am a child of the stars. You may call me Soraka. hi oh, we had a Soraka reveal, which that's very surprising up to this point because none of the media, media I'm familiar with has showed her involved in any of the story. So this is kind of important. Actually, kind of. It's really important. Uh, but it's going to make sense as we talk more about this, this chapter because if you listen to our Soraka episode, you know Soraka has been around for a long time and she's sort of a prophet. So what do they do with this? So we move to scene three and Soraka leads Cal to this comfy area uh, in this pit uh, that then offers her some tea, right? And this is kind of like, I guess her living quarters, quote unquote, it looks comfortable. Her staff that we know her for is like kind of leaned up against a tree nearby. It's, it's a comfortable area. And they chat for a bit where Soraka tells her that, you know, she's sort of a prophet, uh, but she's not all knowing. And there's some back and forth in this chapter. What it boils down to is that Callista is getting frustrated with Soraka because she won't get any straight answers on what she should do. Uh, and there's some vagueness about what will happen in the future. But Soraka essentially is telling her that the path that Soraka thinks she'll end up taking is going to be a dark one. Obviously, this foreshadows what we know to be true of Callista's fate in this day and age. Um, but Callista is too frustrated to even realize this part. She's just kind of focused on just give me a straight answer. I'm already mad with all the hoops I had to jump through to get to this position. You're not offering me anything of substance. So Callista's still mad. This is scene four, decides just to leave, right? And she's not really knowing if she offended Soraka in any way because she's an ethereal being. How do you upset an ethereal being, right? Um, especially one that's so at peace as Soraka, like it doesn't have a mean bone in her body. But upon reaching the top of the sinkhole, which takes once again a while to get to, she's met by Pharos speaking her language and telling her to drop her spear back into the sinkhole and don't make any brash moves. And this was an ambush. So, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, the red flags were there. They really had no choice, though. Their hand was forced. So she notices that, you know, Venix is now captive. There's a knife at her throat. Uh, they have her, they, they bind her hands 
and they say, you know, don't do anything crazy. We'll just kill the captain as well. Uh, some of her men are dead, even though she did take out some of their men as well. Uh, but Venix at this point is kind of like, you know, forget me, just kill this fool. Uh, I'm tired of his, you know, ridiculousness. And one thing that comes to Galissa's mind is it's just there's too many. They have crossbow bolts aimed at them. They're tied up. They don't have the numbers. They're just going to give up. And Calista remembers that Soraka says, you know, the pool is deep and leads to the bay. And currently, Pharaoh's, his plan is just to take them captive uh, for the sake of setting up trade routes and paths with Camivore. So he's going to use them as a bargaining tool. But he says, you know, they'll be treated well. They'll be treated like a princess kind of situation. Anyways, Calissa's not down for that. So she remembers what Soraka says. She glances at Venix, kind of whispers something. And while Pharos is distracted, she takes off running. Remember, she's quick, even though her hands are bound. Uh, but she goes towards the cliff's edge and just jumps off. And Venix is right behind her because she knows what the deal is here. And Venix, although, because she was slightly behind, gets hit in the shoulder by a crossbow bolt. And this kind of takes her over the edge, falling right behind uh, Callista. And they both hit the water and start swimming once they get their wits about them back to some moonlight that they see at the surface. And when they surface, uh, they're able to use a spare blade to cut each other free. And then they began heading towards their boat, uh, trying to essentially beat the pace of Pharaohs, because that's the first thing he's going to do is head back to the shore before they find a way back to the boats to escape. We get to scene five. They reach their boat and they begin dragging it out as they hear Pharaoh's men see kind of lamplight or torches in the distance coming towards them. Uh, and Cal has a bit of time. So she removes the oars from Pharaoh's uh, rowboat and chucks them out far into the ocean and notices that this giant sea creature ends up eating the oars well. So that's, you know, a plus. Then they begin to paddle their own boat out of harm's way and head back to the Daggerhawk. So in the final scene here, scene six, uh, Venix checks in with Cal uh, to see if, you know, we're back at the Daggerhawk. Do you want to sink his ship? And she decides it's not worth it. She decides that, you know, the crew that's on the ship that's, you know, docked didn't deserve to die for the decisions that their superior made while they were in the jungle. They may have not known about his plan to betray them. They may have thought, hey, this is just, you know, a quick trip for some money. So Venix pulls the finally pulls the uh, crossbow free out of her shoulder no major damage there she kind of shrugs it off we we know at this point her being vestian um also being magical very strong as well like there's nothing this woman can't do <laughs> so she asks her okay i'm good you're good what's next and cal at this point you know she might be frustrated but she says you know what i've failed we failed it's probably time just to return to Camivore and lick our wounds. And that's where this chapter ends. And that's our start to part two, which all in all, I think is a pretty good start. Uh, this has been a longer episode, uh, but there are plenty of details in this that gave us a little, it, you know, Callista on her own adventure, right? Even though this is about a bigger situation, we're talking about the Ruination here. I mean, the name of the book is Ruination. Uh, it's cool because as I mentioned in previous episodes, this book does a great job making Callista a very likable character. In a short time, I like her and Venix's back and forth banter. I like the approach, like I mentioned a billion times already, 
of the Indiana Jones style adventure that we have here that ultimately ends in failure, right? They don't come out successful. They don't come out winning the day, uh, but this is going to, this establishes more character, right? So I enjoy that. And I'm looking forward to what we get in the next three chapters. So as always, thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon with the next book club episode and other episodes as well. We're still doing our other content, so check that stuff out as well. That's what we've been focused on. So this is taking a while to come out. I apologize for that, uh, but we'll get this going again. Uh, so if you're reading along, I'm sorry I held you up. Uh, if you're ahead, you can still chat about it, right? Uh, but as Hetch always says, take care, everybody. <laughs>